Good morning. Hey, quick teaching moment if you didn't know this. I was thinking about this down there as we were singing. Um, in worship, occasionally you'll see people doing this or this with their hands. And I was thinking about that, and I haven't, I haven't mentioned this in a while, so whenever I'm able to be up front and worshiping, you probably notice I'm like a closet, like charismatic, like I always have to move my hands during worship, uh, Pentecostal church in my blood, I guess. But uh, did you know why we do this? Why sometimes you see people do that? It's interesting, so sometimes you'll see people in worship with their hands like this, in this kind of a position with their palms up, and that's a posture of receiving. So the scripture talks about letting the word of, word of Christ dwell richly among you, and at times when people are singing the truth of the scriptures, and you put your hands in a posture like this, it's kind of a, an attitude towards God of, Lord, what I'm singing, I want to be, uh, be implanted into my heart. Lord, what I'm singing, I receive, and I want this to affect me from the inside out. So when we, we posture our hands like that in worship, that's why we're doing it. But second to that, sometimes you'll see the real, real charismatic folks, and I tend to do this. Like, you, get the, you got like the old ladies like washing the windows, right? Your hands up like this. Why do we do this? You guys know this. This is the international symbol of surrender. Every nation around the planet, if you're involved in war and you see somebody throw their hands in the air, you know that they are surrendering. And so often when people are worshiping and you're singing a truth from Scripture and you see hands raised up like this, not in this position, but like this, it's, Lord, I'm surrendering to what your word says through this song. So if you didn't know that, that was free this morning. I was just thinking about that. I felt the Lord wanted me to share that with you. But uh, just something to think about. You know, I know we're Baptist church, so this is how Baptists worship, right? We did the sway. I get it. But those of us with a little, little Pentecostal in our blood... Don't feel bad when you raise your hands because there's meaning beside that. It's not just rooted in emotion. There's actual meaning in why we do those things. Well, hey, open your Bible, if you have one, to Romans chapter 4. You can find it on your phone as well. Um, if you don't have the Bible app on your phone, I'd encourage you to, to download that. Just go into your app store and search for Bible. It's a great resource and tool for you to utilize. But something I'm going to ask you to do today, this is a little bit different, our elders we're talking this past week, and uh, one of the things that we want to start doing a better job at is starting to kind of gauge the spiritual growth of our church and kind of just sensing our, our people grasping what, what we're teaching or that we feel like they're moving forward, moving down the road in their relationship with Jesus. And so you're going to see us do a few things over the next year to kind of help us gauge that, but this is one of the first ones. If we could throw that next slide up there, please, with the numbers on it, maybe. Yes. So here's what we're going to ask you to do on your phone, and I'm giving you this in advance, so hopefully you'll pay attention for the next 25 minutes. Um, but on your phone, if you've got an iPhone or an Android, a couple of y'all with flip phones, I had coffee with a guy the other day, and we're sitting there talking, and he's like, excuse me, my phone's ringing. Bro reached into his pocket and went, and flipped open a phone. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I just wanted to check on him. Like, I didn't know that you could even get those anymore. This is, I mean, he's like an engineer, like he was a, he, he really had a, quite an important job, but he still used a flip phone, which is nuts. But anyways, um, on your phone, the person two, so this is where you would typically have like grandma's name or the phone number, that first number, text two, that's the number that you're going to put in that spot, all right? And then in the actual message portion, I want you to put that second number, that 37445, and right underneath that number, the answer to the question, what, what was one takeaway from today? All right? So do that at the end of the service. We're going to leave that up after, after service ends today, and uh, that, that all gets then filtered and categorized for us. And just 
to help us see if, if these things are landing. And uh, we're going to do simple things like that over the coming weeks and months to hopefully help us um, in our walks with Jesus. So Romans chapter 4, if you will stand with me in honor of reading God's word. We talk about it living hope that we want to honor the scriptures when we initially read it as well. But other thing I was thinking about, this also, when we do this, we're placing ourselves under the authority of the word of God, which is important. Romans chapter 4, we're going to read verses 13 through 15. And Paul writes these words, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified because the law produces wrath. And when there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray now as we continue just this, this long journey through the book of Romans, that Lord, you would take what can be complicated and complex and Lord, would you help make it simple so that we can understand the truth of the scriptures this morning. So God, give us open ears to hear from your word this morning here in Romans. God, we pray for um, receptive hearts, Lord. We don't just want to hear your word. We want it to change our lives. And God, we pray for obedient hands and feet as we walk with Jesus when we leave this place today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. You've likely, over the past uh, several years, heard me share on a few occasions the importance of the pinky promise in our house when our two daughters were younger. I've told you before, it was very common when both of my girls were younger, if we were going to go somewhere, we were going to do something, that both of my daughters would always ask that question, Dad, do you pinky promise? And they would make you then lock those pinky fingers, and we talked about this before, some of you did this, then you'd, you'd have to kiss your hand as well, that sealed that pinky promise. That meant you weren't going to break your promise. And it got me thinking this week, and I was just driving, and I was thinking about this, this passage here in Romans 4. And I was driving, and I'm like, you know what? Where did the pinky promise even come from? Like, you never hear of, like, the index finger promise, you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't exist, the ring finger promise. You don't ever hear that stuff. Where did the pinky prom promise come from? If you're like me, I'm driving in the car, and I just got to thinking about it. I'm like, man, I bet that just comes from some really lighthearted, you know, story of the two kids probably back in, like, the 40s. They were playing outside on some playground, and they just happened to interlock pinkies, and some photographer happened to capture that, that moment, and it just made its way down through the corridor of time as this lighthearted, wholesome story of the origin of the pinky promise. I was so wrong. Like, total opposite of this. Just so you're aware, and I promise this has a point, the pinky promise, from what I could find, don't research this, finds its origins in the Japanese mafia. I can't make this up, by the way. And what would happen is when these guys would make business deals, these gentlemen in the Japanese ma mafia, they would lock their pinky fingers, interlocking those two small fingers, and for them, that was to be this covenant agreement, this promise within the mafia, that they were both going to uphold their end of the promise or covenant that they were making. But there's more. I then found out, why the pinky finger? Why this one? Because the agreement in the Japanese mafia was this, that if either party broke the covenant or the promise that they were entering, the other party could track them down 
and cut off their pinky finger. Try that next time you pinky promise your kid. (laughs) That's crazy. But it kind of got me thinking, even just with the wild backstory of the pinky promise, that as human beings, you know what we, we know? That we have this innate understanding of the value and the weight that a promise holds. That when someone makes a commitment to us, or when someone makes a covenant with us, we have this expectation, or at least we should, that that individual is going to come through on the commitment that they made, because promises, they matter to us as humans, and promises are meant to be kept when they're made. Think about that in light of Romans chapter 4. We're about halfway through this chapter here. We've been spending time off and on in the book of Romans, 19 weeks so far. We started this in the fall of last year. And right here in Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking to a specific group of people. This was the Jews who were living in Rome. And he's emphasizing to these individuals over and over and over up to this point in Romans that our salvation, so your ability and my ability to be made right with God as sinners, is by faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can do outside of faith in Jesus. There's nothing like kind of work that you can perform that will make you right with God. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. No matter how hard you strive, and we need to hear this in Western culture, no matter how good you try to be, it doesn't matter. You will always fall short of God's holy standard. The scripture says that in Romans 3.23. We're sinners And we can't meet God's standard as expectation for how we should live our lives. So what happened? You probably heard us preach this story before, hopefully. Jesus came. Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't live. Jesus died the death we couldn't die. He absorbed God's wrath against sinners. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus' right standing with God can be applied to your account and to my account. How? By faith. There's nothing we do to earn it. We just trust what God said. I trust the promise that God makes in the Bible, that Jesus' righteousness is applied to my account. I'm not making this up. Let me show it to you in Romans chapter 10 up here on our screen. You can flip there in your Bible if you'd like to a few chapters later. What does God say in Romans 10, starting verse 9? That if we confess, we agree with God, with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord, means he's master and I'm not. I'm sinner. He's completely holy. So I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. What's the promise? That you will be saved. What's he going to say in verse 10? One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So what's the promise God makes to us there in Romans 10? God makes a promise that we can be saved. We can be made right with God again, even though we're sinners and there's nothing we can do about it. God says, if you trust and believe what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, the promise is you will be saved. Now, here's the struggle. The Jews in Rome, they, they really had a tension with this because they believed as Jews that they had a responsibility to uphold God's standard on their own. This is what was known in the Bible as the law of Moses. We read about this in the first um, five books of our, our Old Testament They thought they could get right with God, they could achieve salvation by doing something on their own. So what does Paul do here in Romans 4? He says, all right, let's continue this discussion. I want to point you guys back to, Paul says, to two guys, Abraham and David. These guys were big deals to the Jewish people. Abraham, father of the Jewish faith. 
David, king over Israel, Israel's greatest king. And what is Paul striving to do in chapter 4? He says, I want to show you guys how these guys, these, these picturesque Jewish men, were made right with God. And it was by their faith in a coming Messiah that we know to be Jesus, not by their works. So, I want to give you three points today. And these talk specifically about Abraham in these verses. But I want to show you today how Abraham was saved by his faith. And how this applies to you and I as well. If you're a Bible nerd, there's going to be a lot of verses today. So you're in heaven. If you're not a Bible nerd, become one real fast because there's going to be a lot of verses today. Okay? Let me show you this real quick. Abraham's salvation, your salvation. This is very simplistic, but so important. Point number one is this. Our salvation and Abraham's salvation was by faith. Look at verse 13 there again in, in your Bible if you have one. God makes a promise to Abraham and his descendants in verse 13. Let's look back at it again. What does it say? For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants was this, that he would inherit the world. Let me read that again. Or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law. Now, I want you, if you have a hard copy of the scriptures, you can highlight it there on your phone. I want you to highlight that three-word phrase, inherit the world, or however your Bible translates that. I read that, and I'm like, what in the world? Inherit the world. What does that even mean for this guy? What does that mean for me as a, a person living in the West in the 21st century? What is Paul even talking about here? Inherit the world. Now, here's where we're going we're to go Bible here. I want you to go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. So Paul's referencing this promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham, his name at the time was Abram before God changed his name, called his from him, him from his hometown his homeland, to follow after God. And when God called Abraham, he gave him three specific promises, all centered around this idea of inheriting the world. So when Paul talks about this promise made to Abraham and his descendants of inheriting the world, Paul is referencing back to what we're about to read here in Genesis chapter 12. And God makes three promises to Abraham. This is important. I'll write these down if you're a note taker. Um, you can research this stuff later. God promises Abraham land, Seed and kingdom. Land, seed, and kingdom. Let me show this to you here in Genesis chapter 12. It'll be up here on our screen, hopefully. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Maybe not, that's all right. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, so this was before his name was changed, go from your land and your relatives and your father's house, here's the first promise, to the land that I will show you. So God promises Abraham land, if he was obedient, to leave where he was. Then what does he say? I will make you into a great nation. There's seed. Abraham was an old dude, by the way. His wife was super old as well. Kind of hard to have babies when you're like a billion years old. All right? It's just reality, biology, just how things work. God says, I'm going to give you land. Your seed is going to be great. That's your descendants. He says, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here's our third promise. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's kingdom. Land, seed, and kingdom are these promises given to Abraham. So again, write this down. Verse 1, he promises him land. That was the land of Canaan. You could read about that in Genesis 15, verse 7, the end of Genesis chapter 15. This was ultimately seen, this promise fulfilled through Abraham's descendant Joshua, when the nation of Israel went under Joshua's leadership to um, possess the land of Canaan, the promise fulfilled. He says in verse 2, Abram, if you obey me and you go, I'm going I'm to give you seed or descendants. From Abram's 
um, lineage, a great nation was formed. What is that great nation? Israel, yeah. Somebody was probably Mexico or Canada. No, this was Israel. So what do we know in the scriptures? Old Testament, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. There we go. See, we're in. We're, everybody's locked and loaded now. Changed his name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the rest is history. That was Abraham's promise from God being fulfilled. Here's what's kind of cool too, though. Galatians 3.29 actually says that if we put our faith in Jesus, that we're also part of Abraham's descendants or Abraham's seed because our common faith in a Messiah. I thought that was kind of cool. Here's the last one. God promises Abraham kingdom. Verse 3, what did he say in Genesis 12? That all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abram. This is what's known in the scriptures as a messianic prophecy. It was a, a forward look at Jesus who was still to come hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped into the picture. How would Abraham's um, seed bless the entire nation, like bless the whole world? You can go over to Matthew. We're not going to do it because we've got a lot of stuff to walk through, but Matthew 1-2, you see Abram's name. Then you go down to Matthew 1-16, and you see Jesus' name. From Abraham's lineage, Jesus was born. And because of Jesus, you ready for some good news? All people of the earth have the opportunity to be blessed and rescued from our sin and relationship with God restored. It was the gospel before the gospel was fully realized. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 4. Turn back there with me in your scripture. When Paul talks about inheriting the world, which part of this promise from Genesis 12 was he referring to? Was he talking about this promise of land, seed, or kingdom? It was entrance into the kingdom. That's the whole premise of Romans. Paul wants us to understand the gospel, how we're made right with God and have entrance into the kingdom of God. And what does he say there in verse 13? That Abraham's seed would not inherit the world, would not be saved, would not have entrance into the kingdom of God through the law. Remember, Paul's talking to a Jew Jewish audience here in Rome. He says it's not by upholding the law of Moses and God's standard that you're made right with God. And Abraham proves that. Why? I hope this makes sense because I was reading this this week and I'm going, duh. Do you know why Abraham couldn't be justified by the law of Moses? Because it wasn't around. Can you imagine the Jews in Rome? They're going, well, daggone it. You're right, Paul. You can't be justified by something that didn't even exist. Did you know that from the time God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 to the time that the law is introduced in Exodus 12, that 645 years passes. You can't be justified by something that doesn't exist. It's interesting in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, that Paul actually writes in there, it's going to be up on our, our screen here, that my point is this, Paul says, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously established. He's talking about God took this covenant with Abraham, and he passed it down to Isaac, and he passed it down to Jacob, and then 430 years after Jacob, the law of Moses shows up. I mean, that's when God's standard finally hit. Abraham couldn't be justified by something that didn't exist. As a Bible nerd, like, this pumps me up. I'm seeing some of y'all right now, and you're like, who cares? This is awesome. If you don't think so, Pastor Joe's going to throw his shoe at you, Right? You can't, be up, you can't be justified by something that doesn't even exist yet. So how is Abraham made right with God? 
Check this out, Romans 4.13. I love this. It'll be up on our screen, hopefully. Romans 4.13. Here we go. How is he justified? Last part. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham was made right with God by faith in what God said. What did God say? Through your seed, the whole world will be blessed. What did Abraham do? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Did he understand everything? No. But did he know that Jesus was the answer? Yes. Can I tell you a quick little story? I hope this is okay. I didn't ask my wife about this. This past week, my, my five-year-old, you guys know I'm a huge advocate of, of kids coming to faith in Jesus, big advocate around here. I don't want my kids to have testimonies. I want them to have the testimony of, I chose to follow Jesus when I was really little, and I've walked with him ever since. That's a pretty good testimony in my book. A little girl comes downstairs. She was reading her Bible with my wife. It was on Tuesday. And I hear Liz go, just go talk to dad. Just go talk to dad. She comes downstairs, and I'm paying bills. Five years old, soon to be six. She walks down to the desk downstairs, and she goes, dad. I said, yeah. God's honest truth, exact words out of a five-year-old's mouth. I need to repent. What? What did you say? She said, I need to repent. Repent of what? My sin. I said, do you even know what repentance means? I said, you know, repentance means that you're turning from sin and you're making a decision to follow after Jesus. She goes, yeah, Dad, we learned of that at church, duh. <laughs> I said, all right, baby. I said, let's do this. And so I pulled out my phone, my Three Circles app. It's a tool I use to share the gospel. I walked her through the gospel. I said, do you understand this? Yes, I know all of that stuff. I said, okay. I said, let's talk about it in the morning. I want to... Again, with, with children, you want to be certain that they fully understand what they're doing. Next morning rolls around. I had just gotten home, and Elizabeth was, was getting some stuff ready, and Colby, right when she wakes up, walks into the room. Mom, I'm ready to repent. I'm like, Lord, I, and I'm praying internally. I'm torn. I'm like, God, you're doing something here. I know you are. And she came in, and she asked me, Daddy, can I repent this morning? I said, baby, let's talk about it this afternoon. And so she went and talked to Liz. She was mad at me. Like, how dare you keep me from repenting of my sin? And Liz said, talk to dad in the car. And so we got in the car, I was taking him to school, and she wanted to talk about it, but I was very hesitant, and I'm like, man, she's still young. My wife got saved when she was five. She's one of the most godly people I've ever met. And I was kind of hesitant to talk about it. She got home, and she was mad because dad wouldn't talk about repentance in the car. And I came home a little bit early because we had a deacon's meeting that Wednesday, and I walked into the room in the house, and Colby, right off the bat, dad, can I repent yet? <laughs> I'm ready to, to confess my sin and repent. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, we'll talk about it tonight. And I told Liz when I left, I said, I don't think she's going to wait. She really is being stirred by the Spirit of God that she understands that she's a sinner and her only hope is in Jesus Christ. And I got a text message right in the middle of our deacon meeting of a video of my five-year-old daughter who had gotten on the floor of her bedroom right there and acknowledged before God that she was a sinner and that Jesus was her only hope of an eternity with him. She got done praying and Liz took a little video. And in the video, my five-year-old daughter says these words, I'm just full of so much joy now, I can feel it. Why do I tell that story? 
Does she understand everything in the intricacies of all aspects of salvation and sanctification and all of these doctrines of Scripture and eternity? And the tr- No. What does she know to be true? God made a promise that if she understands that she is a sinner and her only hope is in the saving work of Jesus Christ, that she can bank on that promise. Abram's no different here. God said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Folks, today we have to understand, do you believe in the promise that God made? Abraham's salvation was secured by faith. Has yours been? Or are you still striving to somehow make God happy with your life? To somehow be better and do better? That's not what it's all about. It's belief in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us by faith. Here's point number two. It's by faith and it's not by works. We've said this over and over, but Paul wants to continue to drive this deeper in verse 14. He wants to make sure these Jews have zero confidence in themselves for salvation. So in verse 14, he does this if-then argument. If this is true, then this logically has to be true as well. What did he say? If those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made empty and the promise is nullified. If those who are in Rome, who he's writing to, somehow believe that they can keep God's standard as a way to get right with him, if their efforts are secured because of what they do, and if those people get entrance into the kingdom, Paul says that two things then have to logically be true. This goes for any of us, not just the Jews in Rome. If you truly believe, and there there are faith systems that believe this, even in Christian circles, if we somehow believe that we can achieve God's righteous standard in our own effort, two things have to be true, Paul tells us here in verse 14. First, faith is empty. Faith is empty. It means our trust in God and his promises is pointless, is a word that we could put there. That if I can do it on my own, I don't need God to do it for me. I don't need Jesus. So what's the point of faith? Charles Spurgeon, I read it this week. He said, the greatest enemy to the human soul is the self-righteous spirit, which makes men and women look to themselves for salvation. May we never be those people. If we could do it on our own, then faith in Jesus is pointless. Here's the second thing. If we could achieve salvation on our own, he says that the promise is nullified, voided, no longer needed. If we can get right with God on our own, why would we need God to save us, Paul says? Paul says salvation has to be by faith, or we don't need salvation at all. Can I just tell us this morning that if any of us in this room are trusting in ourselves for salvation, we might as well pack up. We might as well turn off the lights, go home, and never do this church thing ever again. Because why worship Jesus if Jesus doesn't need to save me? What's the point? What's the point of gathering with the body of Christ if you're just trusting in yourself for salvation? That's pointless. You need to just go home and worship yourself. But if we genuinely and truly trust Jesus for salvation... And we genuinely and truly understand that apart from him, we are utterly hopeless as human beings. Why wouldn't we gather to worship? I mean, we would have no other response but to worship Jesus. 
Salvation's by faith, not by works. Here's the last one as we close, and it's secure. I want us to hear this this morning, that it's secure. Romans 4.15 says this, that the law produces wrath. He, he wanted these Jews to understand there in Rome that the law was never meant to be a means of salvation. That wasn't the point. It was never meant to give you right standing with God. Look at what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.21. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been, listen to this, been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But it doesn't have that ability. The law was not meant to do that. What was the purpose of the law? Thank you for asking. I'm really glad that you all did. Galatians 3.19. Paul, he just addresses it right out. Why was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through the angels by means of a mediator. What was the purpose of the law? To reveal to us that we're sinners and we need a savior named Jesus. That was the point. God gave the law for you and I to understand that we're not a big deal, we're not hot shots, we're not as great as we think we are. When we stand ourselves up against God, we are nothing, and if he doesn't step into our story, we are hopeless. I hope that encourages you this morning. Because our perspective on that, it really does. You can hear that in one vein, and you're hopeless, worthless, terrible human being, and you're going, Aaron, wow, thanks. But then when you couple that with that the God of the universe loved you so much to come on your behalf and to live the life you couldn't live, die the death you couldn't die, to rescue from a sin that you could do nothing about, for his glory for all eternity, he chose to come and scoop you up. And if you'll put your faith in him, you can be made right with him forever. Then you look at that and you're like, my gosh, what a God we serve. Look at Galatians 3.10. Here's the hard part, and I just want to close with this simple thought. Culturally, we live in this age of striving. We want to be better, get better, do all these things. And that has seeped over into the church, into Christianity. We're like, and we hear phrases like, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I haven't done what they've done. And I want us to see this morning, Paul says that even if you're only guilty in breaking part of God's standard, you're guilty of the whole thing. See, the, the, the guilt seeps over. That's what's hard about this. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it's written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. We're sinners. It's just the reality. We can't meet God's standard. If you get pulled over this afternoon, and the officer says you were going five miles over, you're like, yeah, but I wasn't going ten. He's going to say, Okay. <laughs> You're still guilty. So what did the law produce, Paul said? The law produced wrath against sinners. That was the point, to show us who God is and who we weren't. What's the solution? Jesus Christ. That we put our trust in Jesus Christ, believing the promise that when we do that, we can be made right with God again, and there's no greater message on the planet. And we're remind us of what the Scripture says as we close that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because of sin. Friends, because of sin, you and I are spiritually dead and physically dying. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of our sin is death, but 
The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That God proves his own love for us that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And then what's the promise if we confess him as Lord and believe in our hearts that God actually raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to know this morning that God made a promise to you and he made a promise to me that I don't have to trust in myself to be made right with him again to get my salvation. It's not on me. But I can trust in the promise that he made that he will save me if I put my faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that this morning, my gosh, please, I pray that today is that day for you. Can we pray as our praise team comes? God, we love you so much. Lord, I pray that your word would not fall on deaf ears this morning, but it would be something that would change us from the inside out. God, as we remember that simple truth that you made a promise, you made a promise and it was made evident through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. I'm going to pray that each one of us this morning would be able to resolve and settle in our hearts right now. Whether or not we're trusting in ourselves to somehow be right with you or whether we've actually put our faith in Jesus Christ as the means and avenue of being made right with God. And Lord, I pray if any of my friends, whether they're in the room or watching online or listening on the radio, have not ever wholly surrendered themselves over to Jesus, that in this moment that they would do that. As my little girl said, that they would repent of their sin. Lord, turn away from, from their sin and give themselves to you. And that today that would be the day that they do that. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.